this morning we're talking about a message called Holy Fear or Holy Afraid. Fear can be a powerful motivator of actions. Fear can be a powerful uh, motivator of what you do or what you don't do. Uh, and sometimes fear is used in order to direct your actions and my actions. Uh, sometimes uh, it's used in signs to help us uh, be careful of where to go or where not to go. Um, I don't know what language that is or, or what that is, but I hope it says stay behind the ropes like it says in English. Uh, but that top sign, I mean, you look at that sign and someone was like, how can we come up with something that will make sure people are not going to walk across whatever that ice bridge is or something. Um, and, uh, and that's pretty, for me, that's pretty convincing. Um, looks like you are falling to your peril and utter death uh, should you choose to do that. Uh, this second one, you know, crocodile safety, which is a complete oxymoron to me. There is no, there is no crocodile safety. Um, just stay away from crocodiles. Let them have their place and and we can have ours, but uh, signs used to create fear and can be helpful in directing our actions. These other ones, uh, also the same thing. Uh, if you're going to go swimming, uh, watch out for the marine stingers. I've never seen that sign at a beach where I've swam at, but watch out for that. Uh, dangerous shore breaks. And this one, <laughs> I don't know what to do when you see that one, but... Um, but there's fear that's created there. Fear can be a powerful way to direct the way that we act or we don't act. Uh, it can be used in helpful ways to keep us safe. Uh, it's often used to direct our actions. We, you see this all throughout life. You see it with parents, with kids, right? You see it with, hey, you'll be sorry. You know, you're going to touch that. You'll be sorry. You're going to go do that? Okay, but you'll be sorry. You're going to burn yourself. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to fall. You'll be sorry. You know, sometimes we use fear to protect people. Uh, fear can also be used sometimes not as effectively and not as helpful, maybe in a work situation. Maybe you've been in a work situation. You had a boss that used fear as a primary way to motivate you. Uh, not always, not what I think is a very helpful way to lead, but some people like to uh, lead that way. And uh, so you come and they say, you know, uh, maybe you hear something like if our quarterly profits, you know, if they don't, they don't turn around, they don't come up, you know, we're just going to have to start letting some people go. And there's a motivator that fear suddenly becomes a, becomes a motivator there. Uh, fear is used sometimes in, uh, you know, in relationships. Sometimes people use fear to get what they want to manipulate people. If you don't do this, I'm going to leave. Or if you do that, we're through using fear as a way to try and control people. Even nations will use fear. You launch those missiles, we're going to launch these missiles. You know, if you get a, a gun, we're going to get a grenade. If you take this, we'll take that. You do that. So fear becomes a motivator of actions, even on a national geopolitical scale. Fear can be an incredible director of the way we act or the things we do or the things we don't do. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes, like falling in a crevice or swimming with crocodiles or uh, whatever that is, fear can be helpful. It warns us of something that's coming. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is that sometimes fear is not helpful. Sometimes people will try and use fear to keep you from doing what you know you are supposed to do. Sometimes there's people, you're going to face opposition in your life, and sometimes people won't want to see you 
complete the rebuilding work in your life or build something in your life, and they will attempt to use fear to try and control and influence the way you and I act. The truth is we all, as you endeavor to follow God, we all have an enemy in our lives who will try and use fear to control our actions. There is an enemy of your soul. Satan will try and use fear to control the way you live or don't live. And sometimes he'll use people to try and put fear in your life. And you need to watch out for that. This morning as we come to a passage in Nehemiah, we're looking at a place where Nehemiah came to a place where there were those who didn't want to see the rebuilding work take place. And the way they were going to try and stop it was to try and make him afraid. And they thought, if we can make him afraid, we'll keep him from completing the work that we don't want to see completed. And I want to look this morning at three tactics they use to try and make him afraid, because I think there's still tactics that people may use in your life to try and make you afraid and keep you from doing the things that God has called you to do. And then I want to look at how Nehemiah responded. And we're going to go through these fairly quickly, so I've put them on the screen so you can write them down as we go. But the first one... The first way that people try to, may try to make you afraid, may try and control the way you act or the way you live is with threats to your physical health, threats threats to your well-being. And they did this to Nehemiah, as we look at it in Nehemiah chapter 6, a couple different places, and I'm going to... We're going to be jumping around from a number of scriptures here in chapter 6, so I'll read them from the screen uh, Sanballat and Geshem. So Sanballat and Geshem, these are the enemies. These are the guys that are trying to keep Nehemiah from building the wall. They don't want to see the wall rebuilt. They like being able to oppress the, the people of God, Jewish people, whenever they wanted. They like to be able to control them. They like to be able to exploit them. And they know if Nehemiah completes his work of rebuilding the wall, they won't be able to do that anymore. So they don't want the wall rebuilt. Sanballat and Geshem, when I think of them, some of you are old enough to remember this. I think of the old Muppets episodes with, with the old guys up in the balcony that all they do is like just criticize and, and they're like, oh, this is awful. And they're just up there, you know, criticizing everything that goes on. I, I think they're like, that's Sanballat and Geshem in my mind. That's what they look like, right? And they're just, they're constantly uh, throwing taunts at people. And, and, uh, and so Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. They were trying, they, they wanted to physically hurt him. And then another scripture goes on, it says, uh, a little further down in chapter 6, now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. And we'll talk about uh, that sin in a little while, what they were trying to do. But you can see what Nehemiah was saying is they were trying to make him afraid. They're saying he was hired to tell Nehemiah, so he was hired to give some fake news and to tell Nehemiah... That, that this is, look, they're coming to kill you. They're coming, they're, they're coming to kill you, and you need to go and hide in the temple because there are people that are going to come to kill you. There is a threat to your 
physical well-being. There is a threat to your physical health, so it should change your actions. You should stop the rebuilding work. You should stop doing what you're doing and go and protect yourself. And there are sometimes people in your life or times in your life where you will be tempted to change your actions, to change the way you're acting, and maybe even stop the work that you know God has called you to do because you're worried about threats to your physical health. Now, before you say, well, move on, say, oh, well, this one isn't about me, Pastor Rick. You know, this isn't me. Just move, let's move on to the next one because, look, I'm not living in a time. No one's trying to kill me. No one's making threats against my life. You know, there's no, no one's hired a hit out on me. This isn't like 1920s Chicago and you got like Al Capone running around, you know, trying to get, you know, what are you talking about? There's no threat to my physical health. But before you move on too quickly, let me ask you this question. How much time do you spend worrying about your health? How much time do you spend worrying about your health? Spending on medical expenses is one of the largest parts of our economy. It's huge. It's why this big fight over national health care, not because it's a huge financial part of our economy that is involved here. People spend huge amounts of money on staying physically fit, eating right, taking vitamins, all and the like, finding the right doctor, all of that. If anything, I think in our time, there are more people scared about losing their health and have more, they have, we feel like we have more reasons to be scared about losing our health than maybe in even in Nehemiah's time. Maybe it's not someone making a physical threat against your health, but maybe your actions are being determined by a fear about your health. I mean, there are other times in history and other parts of the world where people might be worried about where my next meal is going to come from and what am I going to eat. In 21st century America, we have the privilege of worrying about what kind of infinitesimal microscopic bugs might be eating us. And so we are worried about our health. What's eating us? Get the antibacterial. Get it out. Wash my hands. You know, and we are worried about our physical health. And how many times could it be that sometimes we get so afraid in our physical health that it can distract us and keep us from doing that which God might be calling us to do? Our health can be one of the things that we hold so dear in our lives that we even put it above God in our lives. It comes through in statements that we sometimes say. We say, well, at least I have my health. Well, at least you have your health. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes what we might be saying is, look, the most important thing in the world is your health. And I think it is one of the most important things in this world. But in the big picture, in the eternal picture, it's actually not one of the most. It's not the most important thing. And so your health, threats to your physical health could be used to try and put fear into you. Second one is this, threats to your reputation. Threats to your reputation can be used to put fear in you. Threats to your reputation. Nehemiah's enemies tried to put fear in him. They said in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Don't rush past that phrase too quickly because it's significant. An open letter. As opposed to a letter when you send from person to person, which would be like an encrypted text message, right? And you send it to one person and only that other person can get it. In, in Sam Ballot's time, it would be a letter that would be sealed with a wax seal that only the person who could open it, the intended recipient, would break that seal and get it so you would be sure that no one else would read it. But that's not what Sam Ballot sends. He sends an open letter, no seal. 
so that anyone, when it gets passed from person to person to person, can read it before it gets to Nehemiah, and he does that intentionally. He sent an open letter in his hand, and in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, and everybody knows it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Next slide. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear the and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, he prays, strengthen my hands. Threats to your reputation. What they wanted to do is they were circulating this letter that was untrue, and they said, Nehemiah, you know, this is what people are saying. You're just doing this so you can set yourself up as king, and you're doing this to rebel against the king, and the king's going to get word about it. You know, this is what they're saying about you. So, Nehemiah, you better stop the work and protect your reputation. You better stop doing what God's called you to do and come down and fix this because that's what's important. And the temptation in that moment is to be more concerned about his reputation in the eyes of people than he is concerned about the work that God has called him to do. And sometimes we can also be so concerned about our reputation that it takes precedent over some of the work God's called us to. You may say, well, that's not me. You know, I'm not really concerned about that. Well, how much time, young person, do you spend managing your online profile? How much time do you spend making sure that Instagram, Facebook, whatever other social media are on, Twitter, Snapchat, always reflects positively on who you are? Make sure that image that you want to project to people is projected. And when someone puts something on your wall or your, your page that, that, that you don't, that you just want to that isn't right and you uh, get so mad and it just becomes the focus of all you are in that moment and you are completely consumed with what other people might think about you or someone says something about you on their wall and you become completely consumed with what other people think about you. I'm not saying your reputation's not important. I'm not saying these things aren't important. I'm saying the threat is that when they become controlling in us, and they determine all our actions, that we are all consumed by them, that they can take us away from the work that God has called us to, which may very well be what they were intended to do in the first place. And we don't always see it that way. It's not that we don't care about our reputation, but we must be aware that if we obsess about it, then we can be, it can become a controlling fear in our lives. It can be something that determines what we do or what we don't do. It can be a fear that our enemy would use to distract us and keep, keep us from doing the work that God has called us to. Third thing is this. Third thing is threats to relationships. Controlling fears. Fears that can control the way we act and live. Threats to our physical health. Threats to our reputation. And threats to relationships in our lives. We don't want to lose people. We, don't want, we want everyone to like us. For Nehemiah, it looked like this. Moreover, this is after the wall was finished. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Don't forget, Tobiah is one of his enemies outside the wall. This is, this is Sambalat and Tobiah. They're the Muppets on the stage there. Uh, letters to Tobiah. Tobiah's letters came to them. 
nobles of Judah. These are the people that are supposed to be on Nehemiah's side. These are the people that are supposed to be in his court. These are the people that are supposed to be supporting him. And they're sending letters unapproved diplomacy to the enemy. They're sending letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters were coming back to them. They're having communication with the enemy. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. All that to say he's related. All that to say he's related to some of the people in Judah because they had married other peoples in the land, even though they weren't supposed to. They did, and he's related, and so these people feel like they're bound to, that, to him, and they're having correspondence with him. Also, they spoke good of his deeds in my presence. Well, that sounds nice. What's wrong with that? They're trying to, they're trying to flatter him. They're trying to change his opinion. They're trying to influence Nehemiah's opinion, even though they know that this is an enemy of what the work that God has called Nehemiah to do. They spoke well of it, good of his deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. To make me afraid. I don't know what was in those letters. Nehemiah doesn't tell us, but based on the text before, it seems like the fact that he was trying to make him afraid by the fact that, look, these guys, these nobles, these guys that are supposed to be high up in your, you know, uh, government, these guys that are, that are wealthy, that you're supposed to trust, they don't even, they're, they're corresponding with me. They're on my side. They're on your side. You can't even trust these nobles in your government. And such, it's like that in our life, that there's threats to, we get influenced by threats to our relationships. You get in a fight with somebody, maybe, uh, you know, in, in, in school, and all of a sudden, your friends start taking sides. Oh, you think they're your friend? No, they're my friend. And threats to relationships starts to influence the way we act and the way we live. Ah, if you, you know, they're going to they're gonna side with me, not with you. And so this can be an influence on the way that we live too, the threats to relationships in our lives. It can influence us in the decisions that we make. So what do we do about this? These threats that come, threats to physical health, threats to our reputation, threats to relationships. What do we do about this? In these verses, Nehemiah reveals the secret to not allowing people, not allowing being afraid to stop the work. And the secret to not being afraid is to fear. The secret to not being wholly afraid is to have a holy fear of God. And that holy fear of God determines the way that he acts. The secret to not being afraid is to have a holy fear. And so let me give you three responses to those three physical threats that come that Nehemiah takes. The first one was a threat to his physical health, and the first response he, does, he gives is he does not get distracted from the great work that he is doing. He does not get distracted from the great work that he's doing. Here's his response. I love Nehemiah's response. And I sent messengers to them saying, this is when they said, you know, come down to the plain. You know, let's meet there. And he said, well, they're trying to do me harm. And he said, I sent messengers, messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? 
And they sent to me four times this way, and I answered them in the same manner. I love his response. I'm doing a great work. I can't stop this work because and come down and talk to you. Here's the thing. Anyone outside the walls would not think that Nehemiah is doing a great work. Not because just because they didn't agree with what he was doing, but because it was insignificant. What they would have thought was great was the place Nehemiah left. He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. He had his ear. He was in his court. He was there with the king. He was speaking to power. He was in the halls of power. What people would have thought, that is a significant role. What you're doing now, piling up some rocks around an insignificant city that no one really cares about, that's not significant. That's not a great work. What you're doing now, just just building up this, this city, that's not a great work. No one would have thought what Nehemiah was doing was a great work except Nehemiah and the people that understood why he was doing it. Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work. I used to be in the king's palace, but what I'm doing now is a great work. And here's the thing. Putting rocks around a small town is not what makes Nehemiah's work great. It's a dedication to God's name and God's purposes and God's calling that makes his work great. And it's the same for you and for me that maybe you don't think anybody sees what you're doing. Maybe you think no one's really paying attention to what you're doing. And maybe it feels like the work that you're doing is insignificant. But if you are doing a work that God has called you to, and if you are on mission, doing the things that God desires you to do, you're doing a great work. You're doing a great work, and it may not be in the halls of power, but if you are discipling people and you are sharing Christ with people and you are being the light of Christ to people, then you are doing a great work. If you, mom, are, are raising those kids that have been put in your care and, you, and you're raising them up in the ways of God and no one sees it, you are doing a great work. You're doing a great work because you are doing what God has called you to do. Single mom who this morning had to get up after a long week of working and providing for your family and get your kids to church on a Sunday morning and it's hard and it's hard work, but you are doing a great work. And don't get distracted from that and don't let anyone tell you differently. And dad, uh, when, uh, when, when you are tempted to, uh, by others to, to do something else other than go home to your family, someone says, hey, why don't you, you know, they're always going to be there. What do you want to do that for? Why don't you come out with us? Forget it. You know, they're going to be there. You want to be home with your family for. And you go home and you spend time with your family and you love them. You are doing a great work in that moment. Or you go out and you provide for your family and you work in that workplace as a man of God, as a woman of God, and you work in that workplace with integrity and you work in that workplace with diligence and you wonder if anyone else notices you're doing a great work. 
And so your response when people uh, may try and manipulate you with fear is, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. I can't be distracted by the things that are going to distract me from the great work that God has called me to. The second day, time they try and manipulate him with threats to his physical health are they this rumor that someone's going to try and kill him. And so the temptation is you need to go into the temple and hide. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, Nehemiah says, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent them because he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid. Here's what's going on. They threaten Nehemiah's health. And they say that, you know, there's people coming to kill you. You should be afraid of it. You should go hide in the temple. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He was an important person in the government, but he wasn't a priest. And he had no right to go into that temple. And if he goes into that temple, he knows that he will be violating the law of God. And so what they were trying to do is get him to defame the name of God and violate God's law so that they could taunt him and say, see, see, he's not who you thought he was. Their problem was they made the mistake of assuming that Nehemiah was more afraid of what they could do to them physically than what God could do spiritually. They, were more, they thought that Nehemiah would be more concerned about his physical health than he would be about pleasing his heavenly father. And this is where holy fear over being wholly afraid takes over. Nehemiah says, they may be coming to kill me, but I will not violate God's law by going into his temple. I will not become distracted by the work. I will not defame the name of God. I will obey God even though men may say they are threatening to kill me. And he walks in the fear of God. Second thing they do is they threat the threats to his reputation, and Nehemiah quickly just recognizes the lies and keeps on working. He doesn't stay silent, corrects it, but then he keeps on working. Here's what Nehemiah says. He says, Then I sent to him, after these lies are coming out, you're trying to make yourself king. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you have said, as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. I love that response. You're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it won't be done. You're lying! Now we're going back to work. That's all. Didn't become consumed with it. Didn't become all-consuming. Didn't, didn't feel like he had to spend all of his efforts, all of his mind. Didn't feel like that had to be a controlling desire in his life to correct everyone that might have heard it. He just said, you're lying. And the people that know me will know that you're lying. And the people that aren't for me are going to believe what they want to believe anyway. He had to trust that King Artaxerxes, should the word get back to him, this rumor, Nehemiah is setting up a kingdom and he's going to make himself king, he had to trust that his years of labor in the king's court, that the king would say, that's not Nehemiah. I know Nehemiah. He was my cupbearer. He wouldn't do that. He had to trust that the integrity of his life would be enough for him to stand on. And those people that didn't want him to succeed were going to believe whatever they wanted to believe anyways. And they were going to say, oh yeah, Nehemiah, that's probably Nehemiah. Yeah, he's, he, that sounds like that's something he would do because they're not for him anyways. So he recognized, I can't control what the people 
that don't like me are going to say, and the people that are for me had to hope and pray that the life that he's lived would stand enough, and the life of integrity that he lived. He trusted that God that would fight for him, and that would be enough. So he corrected it, but then he went back to the work, recognized the lies, and then went back to the work. Third thing, threats to relationships, threats to relationships. What he does is he puts God-fearing people that he trusts in place. And so the beginning of chapter 7 says, and Tobiah sent, the end of chapter 6 says, and Tobiah sent letters to me to make me afraid. That's what I had said before, this correspondence between the nobles and Tobiah. Here's what he does. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So these nobles, quote-unquote nobles, that are corresponding with Tobiah and supposed to be leaders and should be leading the people, and Tobiah's trying to say, well, they're with me and not with you. He ultimately just says, look, I, I got God-fearing men that I'm going to put, and I'm going to put them in charge over these things because I can trust them when I leave. Forget about these nobles, but I'm going to put some God-fearing men in charge that will fear God more than men. And so these threats to relationships, Nehemiah finds people he can trust and he puts them over things that are important and he knows that they fear God more than men. So holy fear or holy afraid? Are you going to live your life holy afraid or will you live your life with a holy fear of God? Christ knew the importance of this principle when he was walking this earth. See, the truth is, one greater than Nehemiah has come, who feared not what humans could do to his physical body, but rather had such a holy fear of his heavenly Father that he would not do anything to displease him. Christ, when he was Jesus, when he was walking this earth, at one point, some religious leaders came to him and uh, they said, at that very same hour, Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Herod, a king, wants to kill you. These religious leaders who were not for Jesus, they said, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus' response is, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. They're saying, stop doing the work of God. Stop doing what you're doing. Go and hide because people want to hurt you physically. People want to kill you. And Jesus says, this is what I'm called to do, and I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to finish it. And you go tell that fox, Herod, this is what's going to happen. I'm not leaving because I'm afraid of what people are going to do to me. Jesus says, I'm going to finish the course. I'm going to finish the work that God has called me to complete. And it's his example that we follow. This Jesus, go tell that fox, Herod, that I'm going to finish the work. I'll continue to cast out demons. I'll continue to heal the sick. See, Jesus faced the same kind of threats when he walked this earth that you and I face. And the way he dealt with them 
is with a holy reverence for his heavenly Father. See, this fear that we talk about is not the fear of like being afraid of, of, of someone who's going to hurt you. The fear of God is a holy reverence of God, a holy awe of God. Not a fear like, oh, watch out because God's going to squash me. God's going to stomp me. He's looking for a way just to punch. That's not that kind of fear. No, it's more the reverence and awe of a child for a parent. I know the parent. child knows the parent in a good situation, in a healthy relationship. The child knows the love of the parent and lives their life the way the parent is directed because there is this reverence, there is this respect, there is a trust that has been built up. And that's the kind of holy fear and reverence that God has called us to. And that when we have that for God himself, that all the other fears disappear. disappear. That all the other fears fade away. It was March 21st, 1748. March 21st, 1748, on a ship called the Greyhound. A storm rose up, started tearing the ship apart. There was a young 22-year-old sailor down in the hold who started coming up to, uh, to the deck while the storm was going on. And while he was coming up through the hold and coming up through the deck, a giant wave came and swept one of his fellow sailors overboard who was never seen again. And this sailor comes up through the hold and he grabs hold of the wheel of the ship and he steers it for the next 11 hours holding on to the wheel of this ship. And this young man, 22-year-old man, who would later say he was one of the greatest blasphemers that was alive, who cursed God and cursed those who said they followed God and loved God, he was raised in, to know God. He was raised in the church, but he had left it long ago. But in that moment on March 21st, 1748, at the wheel of that ship, while the storm was raging in the midst of those 11 hours when he's just trying to hold it still, in that moment, he cried out to this God that he did not believe in. And he said, God, have mercy on me and spare my life and I will live for you. And he steered that boat for 11 hours, and eventually the storm let up, and he was safe. And he would mark for the rest of his life, March 21st, every year, as the day that God had mercy on him, and as the day that he had begun to follow God. Some things changed instantly. Stopped cursing. Stopped blaspheming God. He started reading the Bible. Other things took time. Other parts of his life that he participated in, specifically in that time of 17, the mid-1700s, the African slave trade, took time for him to realize how wrong it was and what his role should be in abolishing it. This same man, 25 years later, after the work of God was going on in his life for some time, 1772, he's at a church in Olney, England. And he's getting ready to preach his New Year's Day sermon of 1773. 
no longer a sea captain. He's left that wife behind him. He's been pastoring this little church in only England. And what he's learned as he preaches, he wasn't a professionally trained minister or reverend at the time, but here's what he's learned about preaching, that people forget his sermons. I don't know how long it took him to realize that. It didn't take me long to realize that. <laughs> he learned that people don't remember his messages, but they remember songs. Because he heard handmaidens that would sing songs during their work, and they remembered songs. So he started this practice. And the practice was that along with the sermon he would give and the message he would give, he would also write a hymn. He would write a song that would go along with it so that even if they forgot the message, they would remember the song. They would remember the hymn. The end of 1772 He's writing a sermon, and his passage for the morning is First Chronicles 17, 16 to 17, where it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And he's writing on that passage, and he writes the sermon, and then he writes a hymn that week. And the hymn was called Faith's Review and Expectation. Faith's Review and Expectation. It later became known by a different name that we know it by, which is Amazing Grace. John Newton on January 1st, a Friday of 1773. Shared a message with his church and then he shared a hymn. And for the first time to the world, the song Amazing Grace was sung. This song would go on to become one of the most sung and most recorded songs in all of human history. It would be Sung, it would later go across the ocean to America and it would be sung by both sides of the Civil War. It was used as a requiem by the Cherokee Indians on the Trail of Tears. Civil rights protesters sang it during freedom marches. It was sung on the day MLK gave his I Have a Dream speech. It was played when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. It was played the day the Berlin Wall came down, and it was sung on September 11th, 2001, when a nation was mourning. January 1st, 1773, an obscure pastor in an obscure church writes a song that the world would sing about the amazing grace of God. Later, Newton would write, John Newton would write on his deathbed, or say on his deathbed to a friend who was visiting him. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Died in 1807 at the age of 82, but here's why I tell you that story this morning. Because there's a line in that song that we always sing, and we sang it this morning, but I don't even think we think about what we're saying. And the line that, Martin, that uh, John Newton wrote was, "'Twas grace 
that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And why I say I don't think we think about it, because it doesn't make sense. How can fear relieve your fears? How is it that being taught to fear can relieve the fears in your life? Because when you're fearing the right thing, all the other things that you were afraid of are no longer important. So it's grace that taught my heart to fear, and it's grace my fears relieved. Because when I have a holy fear of God, there is nothing in this world that I need be wholly afraid of. And if you want to live your life without being afraid, the key is not to try and stop being afraid. The way to do it is to fear the right thing, or more correctly, the right person which is God in heaven. This is to have a holy reverence of God such that all lesser fears fade into the background. If I find myself afraid a lot and having my actions determined by my fears, it could be that I do not have a proper fear of God. We do this all the time. We let we, we, are, we are able to let go of lesser fears for the right fear. We shake off what a stranger says about us because we know what people who we really care about think about us. All I'm saying is you need to take that one step above, not just to the people who care about you, but to the God who created you and loves you. And when someone says something about you against your reputation, threatens you physically, or threatens relationships in your life, to understand that ultimately what is important is what God in heaven thinks about you. This is what will cast out all of the other things that make us afraid. Jesus knew this, and he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, as he was talking to them, that there would be people that would come, and they will try and kill you, and they will persecute you. But he said, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, what they are doing will be dealt with. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Let your reverence and holy fear be in the right place Fear God and not man. He later goes on to say, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, Jesus says, I know you care about your parents. I know you care about your family. I know you care about what they love and they love you, and that's great, but you must care more what God thinks of you. You must ultimately live your life in light of what your heavenly Father thinks about you. You must ultimately find your security not in the people and the things of this world and what they think about you, but in what God thinks about you. Jesus is saying, for your own good, stop being afraid of what other people and even your own family more than God. Fear God above all. 
Those other people can only cause you pain in this life. Don't sacrifice an eternity of love and peace in heaven for a few years of pain relief here on earth. That's a fool's exchange. That's the exchange of an addict. Have a fear and reverence for the one who is worth fearing. That reverence comes through understanding God's grace. If you're honest with yourself, how much of your life is controlled by what other people think about you? What might happen to your health? Or if something might happen in relationships in your life? If those things control you, there's a fear there. The way to be free of it is to shift your fear from lesser things and people who are not worthy of being afraid of and to focus on the one and only one who is worthy of your fear. When you do that, you will find that you are not afraid, but you are secure in him. He, like the lion Aslan in the Narnia Chronicles, is not tame, but he is good, and you can trust him. When you find yourself in the situation of being controlled by things and people that you're afraid of, simply say these words, you are not worth my fear. You are not worthy of me being afraid of. Because God in heaven, that's what Jesus was saying, don't fear those who can destroy the body. All they can do is destroy your body. And what happens then? You find yourself in the presence of Jesus. Don't be afraid of them. Fear him. Reverence him. Be in awe of him who can destroy both the body and the soul who's over eternity. Find yourself in that situation where you're controlled by these things that are lesser things. You simply say, you are not worth my fear. You say, what's that look like? Do I stop caring about my safety and stop caring about what other people think of me? No, that's not what Nehemiah did. He took reasonable measures for people's safety. Put guards on the wall. He dispatched the rumors about him, said you're lying, it's not true but he didn't let them control him. He didn't leave the work of God because of the fear of men that were trying to control him. So put locks on your doors, but don't build your life around ways to keep yourself safe. That would be a lesser use of your life because you'd be serving a lesser fear. So exercise and take your vitamins. Get an annual checkup. But don't let your health so control you that you won't take risks for God. So live a life of integrity and call out untruths spoken against you, but realize you cannot control other people and it's a fool's errand to spend your time trying to get everyone to like you. Don't build your life around lesser fears. If you want to live your life without being wholly afraid, then make sure that you have a holy fear.